Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 58. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Optograph. And we are continuing our mini-series, uh, going through uh, David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship, going through bit by bit, chapter by chapter, uh, kind of taking his his argument and, and fleshing it out and kind of explaining it. Some people have mentioned that they've uh, kind of struggled to get through the book, and so we thought, hey, let's take some time, walk through each chapter, highlight some of the um, the main arguments, and interact yeah. with it. Yeah, because pie is not just about uh, the old uh, argument or the, the shorthand used to argue with pie, which is um, workmanship of certainty and workmanship of risk. That's that's just an edge of what Pi is talking about in this book. Um, so people tend to latch on to that, but that's not even, I would say, the heart of his argument. So right. we really wanted to dive in and, um, and dig up uh, the gems in this book. So uh, today we're looking at chapter seven. Uh, chapter seven is called Diversity. So Pi has started to walk us through um, this deeper understanding of things like design and how uh, workmanship is executing design, but all design is, it, it's approximation, right? And then what you execute uh, is a showcase of skill based on how close it can adhere to the design or how it uh, wanders from the design. They're all different things to consider. Uh, but in this chapter, he's talking about diversity as uh, a value, as a actually an extremely valuable thing when it comes to uh, the objects or works that we do. Um, so he starts out talking about music, uh, and he's made some comments on music before, so we know already that Pi holds music very highly. Uh, his regard for music is very high. Yep. But I, I like how he sets up the beginning, because he's talking about the relationships between notes and time, and how um, that music, the, the art of making music, creating music, is all about playing with diversity in notes and timing right. and uh, the the differences in that are what make uh, musicality. And so that's what makes art and it's that diversity. So I like how he's already setting it up. That's how he starts out saying, okay, you remember how we've been drawing this analogy with music making? Well, here it is again. We're seeing this diversity. Obviously, if you did not have diversity in notes, right. you had the same note, yeah, the it would same not be a good song. Note. It would be Or monotony. the timing was you know, just simple 4-4. Four, four. Uh, that might be fine for, for a kick drum. Right. But everything else has got to be changing and, and yeah. uh, provide variety. This is just a, obviously, it's a very obvious uh, observation. Um, but he's, he starts with that analogy. Yeah. And so I thought it's interesting uh, talking about this concept of, um, he starts with the idea of variety, but brings it into, he kind of develops the idea into diversity. So variety is something that, you know, way back in 1753, William Hogarth found really vital as mm -hmm. he, he wrote um, his book, An Analysis of Beauty, and mm -hmm. he was exploring what it was. It, it was basically written for, like, anybody to read to understand what makes things beautiful. And so he's talking about lines and curves and proportions and things like that. And one of his key points was this idea of variety in an object, that it's not a monotonous thing. It's not just a single note or a single beat. And so um, if well, you... Yeah, his frontispiece, yeah. right? The, yeah, yeah, at the yeah, beginning exactly. of his book, uh, he has this symbol, a visual representation of this variety, which is um, a, a pyramid 
shape. So it's square that tapers up to, to a point. And then inside of it, there's a serpentine line. It's mm-hmm. a serpent actually with a little head on it. Yeah. And if you're familiar with our work, that is actually, we've adopted that as our symbol, our logo that represents yeah. this because right underneath that, on the, the the plinth right below that, it says variety, Yeah. right? And so Hogarth is saying, there are so many different things that are valuable, but one of the foremost things that I'm gonna put in the front of my book is variety. And so the the pyramid and the serpent is, is as he unpacks it, it's, it's sort of a visual representation of the power of variety. It's not a straight line. And it goes from, you know, you have triangles on the sides and a square in the bottom, and then there's this tapering uh, shape. So he's saying everything about this visual shows variety. Yeah. So it is interesting that um, Hogarth in 1753 knew this, saw this. And this is actually like what Pi's book is about. Yeah. The risk and certainty thing, as you said, is just kind of a, a way to talk about the value of diversity at different scales. Yeah. And so Pi gets into this, uh, as you said, the, this idea of scales. So if you imagine you're looking at a piece of furniture and you're 30 feet away, you can get an overall sense of proportion uh, you might be able to determine, you know, like color, you know, you're not looking at wood grain, you're not seeing hardware, you're not mm-hmm. seeing uh, any uh, minute details, you're seeing a macro view of a piece of furniture. And as you get closer, certain elements kind of reveal themselves. Right. So the the large scale things, the overall proportions fall away as you get closer. <clears throat> right. And other elements that were indistinguishable from a distance start to become clear. So the whole thing he's setting up here is at every scale, the best art is at every scale, yes. it's revealing yeah. new layers of uh, diversity and contrast, yeah. and it's just constantly interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't it, get boring when you get It offers something new, and this is, this is a super important concept to yeah. grab, especially for this chapter. He brings, he brings uh, up a number of um, uh, like examples of this. One is, so let's say you have like a Doric column, right? So you look at it from different ranges. When you're looking at it really closely, you don't see that it's a cylinder at all. What you see are like, if, if it's been like carved out of a piece of marble or something, what you see are the, the chisel marks. You see texture, you see lichens and things like that. Mm-hmm. If you step way back and look at it, you see what looks like a perfect cylinder. Somewhere in between, you realize it's not a totally perfect cylinder, but it was clearly done with great skill. And you see these design elements reveal themselves. At some ranges, they're completely invisible. And so what Pi, he talks later in this chapter about the fact that there is a kind of making where it leaves you devoid of uh, diversity at certain scales. And he mm-hmm. said, that's like death. That's like a dead object. And we'll, we'll get into that in a minute because it's a really interesting thing to think about. So what I like here is he talks about um, uh, these formal elements of design, these formal elements of a visual object, I should say. Um, and so he talks about, he lists them out, uh, shape, surface quality, color, pattern, joints, and then lichen or dirt. Yeah. And you just referenced that, you know, like the lichen growing on an older object. So that contributes to the visual uh, impact of, of that particular object. So he lays out these different uh, formal uh, elements that contribute to the overall uh, aesthetic experience looking at something. And it does remind me, you know, I have, um, you know, 
back years ago, I was recording music by myself. You mm. know, I had my computer and a variety of instruments and I was recording music. And it's so interesting because when you're doing, when you're editing all those tracks, you're laying all the tracks on, you have to listen in headphones and play it through your speakers because different mm. aspects of the music come out in different ways. So I was also, you know, you'd drive in the car and listen to the music. You'd edit it in headphones. You have to edit it so you can, in all of those different scales, as it were, right. all of the elements are shining through. I've also listened to some, you know, really experimental music that they're putting, they're layering in all this weird stuff that you don't actually at all hear when you're just, you know, blaring the song through your house on a Saturday right. morning, but you put the headphones on and then you hear there's this little tiny thing in the back, you know, hard pan to the right, this little thing that just gives you a whole nother experience that you never had before. And I think, you know, I'm picking this up from the, his music analogy that um, if every instrument had the same tonality and the same right. character, it would just be homogenous sounding. That's why you have drums and guitar and bass and vocals hmm. and, the, you know, that variety. You need all of that uh, when you're listening to music for it to sound beautiful. Um, so I think that's a lot of what he's picking up, that these different qualities shape. If you think about it for recording music, you want to have shape and color and surface quality, timbre, right? right. Joints, all these different things uh, that make this complete uh, experience that is pleasing in all of its aspects. Yeah. So, um, it's again, like music becomes a really good, that that's a great, um, like shorthand for this, just thinking about all the different elements that come together and give beauty at the different scales. Like you wouldn't want to have a conversation with the brass section, right? Face to face, right. but from the proper distance, it just resa resounds and reverberates and fills the hall. And so maybe real quick, maybe just in case someone's not making the connection between that and a piece of furniture. Yeah. What would be the the different, I referred to guitar, vocals, bass drum, all these different instruments that provide that variety. Within a piece of furniture, what would mm -hmm. you say are some of the um, <clears throat> the elements that are present in a piece of furniture that are different? I know he has shape and joints and color, but I yep. mean within the piece itself. Yeah, so uh, texture is one that we are, mm -hmm. are big fans of because yeah. texture tells you something. Uh, texture has its scale and its range. Um, proportion, mm -hmm. right, is one. You can tell something uh, poorly conceived and something that just kind of blends and flows and looks natural. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, different structural elements can really set off an object. Like uh, there are mm -hmm. a number of chairs here that we're... I'm looking at right now and some have uh you know just the way that the um like the the back splat or the top rail or things like that is is um made in a different shape or size or something mm -hmm. really kind of makes that object jump out as a different style there's an armchair over in the corner that is completely different than all the others uh because it is made with a, a, a woven back and woven seat mm -hmm. um and that that texture really jumps out yeah. at me. Uh, just yeah, I mean, you have like in a Windsor chair, you have a crest rail that's yep. shaped in this all these different patterns, and then you have spindles that it's resting upon, right? right. So you have a totally different shape, even with the same material. Yep. Or paint, or finish, hardware. Yep. I think a lot of, there's this funny thing where people talk about, oh yeah, building with no nails, mm -hmm. you know, no hardware, it's all wood, which is kind of boring. Right. Yeah. You know, when it you when you be. see some metal hardware, when you see those brasses, or you yeah. see 
in a different context, you have like hand wrought nails that are, you know, pinning the top down to the the, the frame of a table base. Yeah, uh, you're seeing this variety that's even in within that kind of stuff. So that variety is is good and is powerful. It makes an impact. Yeah, I mean the two chairs I see as I'm looking past you, Joshua, you have this like um, this Windsor kind of rocker on one hand that is full. I mean, I'm looking right through it. It's only empty sure. space. It's these fine little spindles. It's got this fine little undercarriage. I'm seeing everything behind it. And on the other side is this Swedish stump chair that was carved out of a, a, a tree, right? <laughs> so it is this like, like 20 some inch wide stump it is a solid, immovable-looking object. And they're extremely diverse in every mm-hmm. way, yet they also are both chairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're very unique in that. But they both serve a function of you know, allowing you to sit comfortably. It's just really interesting seeing all those, um, all those features, all the, the variety come together to form two very different but also very similar mm-hmm. uh, pieces of furniture. <clears throat> so we have um, uh, these uh, different, uh, these slight deviations from the regular profile. He's talking about the column, and you have these these slight deviations that they are important elements. He says because he says every formal element has a maximum and a minimum mm-hmm. effective range. So talking about shape, color, surface quality. Obviously, surface quality. You know, when you're looking at a, a landscape and you're seeing a mountain yep. way over there, surface quality is irrelevant. You can't right. really see the surface. You just see the shape or the color, right? But um, all of these, and then again, when you walk up to the mountain, when you're hiking, the shape of the mountain is not right. relevant. Right. Right, because you, you can't see You just know your shape. next few steps. Basically. So he's saying, um, this is a very, a very simple observation again, but he's making things, he's building off of things that are obvious, that all of those elements, color, shape, all that kind of stuff, has a maximum and minimum effective range. So when you're designing, you have to keep that in mind. And at each stage, each range, as, as a person interacts more and more with the object, there are things that are emerging that they didn't see before. Right. I mean, there are a lot of utilitarian objects that are designed and made for like a single specific use. <clears throat> Often those are very boring objects because they don't consider the wide view, the stepping back, how it fits into its environment and that sort of thing. Um, But Pai talks about the fact that as an observer approaches an object, new elements previously indistinguishable successively appear and come into play aesthetically. And at the same time, the larger elements drop out and become ineffective as you approach. So it's it's the mountain idea, Mm -hmm. right? As you get closer, you start to see the, the ground texture and less the the silhouetted landscape. Mm-hmm. And he says when you're at the threshold between those stages, yeah. that these like, he says it's like overtones of notes. Right. That you're starting to sense and, and see that there's another layer that's almost an invitation into the next, uh, you know, proximity of uh, experience. So keep coming, come look at yeah. this. And you experience those overtones as an interesting analogy. Yeah, he says that those are of great importance aesthetically. And I, that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, how uh, it's 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 inviting you to look cl- more closely, and mm-hmm. I, I I think that really resonates um, when we're talking about uh, antique furniture because you know you can look and see hints 
of something, but mm-hmm. you want to get closer. And it's those hints that are really what draw you in. If it is, if it is a, a, a featureless um, piece of industrial furniture, the hints aren't there. Yeah, exactly. It's like a file cabinet, right? You're like, hmm, I don't really need to look closer to know that that surface is as bland as it looks from here. You know, <laughs> you can see from a photograph. You can tell of it. exactly that is there's nothing to it, and then you see it and go, "Yep, it's what I yeah, imagined. that's what I thought it was." But yeah. that's the thing about going and seeing art at an art museum mm. is that when you see that stuff in person, yeah. you go, "Oh my goodness, I, yeah. I've seen this in books before, but I've never yeah. seen this." And there's a whole nother level of experience. Uh, mostly because those things were all handmade. Yeah. Uh, that you get to see the tool marks and the brush strokes and those things. But, um, but when you really experience it in person, I mean, th- again, to use a music analogy, when you see a live performance, you're experiencing aspects that were not uh, filtered out through all of the high production within the studio and post production, right? Right. So it's giving you another layer of experience. And so, uh, so it is with objects in a museum that you're seeing all of those layers there. And so this is really what he's concerned about here is that uh, we identify that because he said if everything, he's basically saying if everything is, uh, if there is no close proximity, fresh experience, mm. you're going to be very disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, he calls those details a vitalizing element. He says that's, you know, that's what brings life to an object. He says, but they're not always found in the environment man has made for himself, though formerly they always were. So now he's uh, he's going to kind of unpack this concept a mm-hmm. little bit more, but he's talking about the idea that, um, I guess you could say, free workmanship, it, it kind of inevitably leads to that, right? So for better, for worse, there is this varying texture this variance from design when it comes to free workmanship applied to, uh, you know, the manufacture of an object. There will be that variety as you get closer, which is not necessarily the case with a an object that's industrially made. Mm-hmm. And so what he says about this, you know, why is this so important? I think it's, it's interesting for us as furniture makers uh, to be talking about this because he's talking about design in general. Mm-hmm. So designing a house or designing a a button that goes yeah. on a shirt. Yeah. So he's talking about at all scales. But as furniture makers, I think it's interesting to we really need to be paying attention to this because he says most of your life for most of your life, the parts of your environment which you are looking at are likely to be at close ranges. Mm. So when you're living your life, you're not living from, you know, miles and miles yeah. away. You're seeing stuff that's mm-hmm. a few feet in front of you. Yeah. So this is a really important question. He says that um, it is for this reason that the art of workmanship is so evidently important. Hmm. It takes over, workmanship takes over where design stops. Hmm. And the design begins to fail to control the appearance of the environment at just those ranges at which the environment most impinges on us. Yeah, And that to me, that... That last sentence is italicized in the text. Yeah, this is he's saying. Pay close attention. I'm, what I'm saying is, when you get to the place where you're, when you're thinking about as a designer, you're looking at the the place where people have the most intimate connection with an object. If you let them down there, and there's nothing to see here, yeah, you've just failed in design. Yeah, right? yeah. 
And it's, it's interesting, too, because, of course, he wrote this in 68, and I'd say we are way more close-range focused now mm. even than then. Like, I mean, I'll bring up the smartphone. Um, obviously, when you're talking about design with a smartphone and what you view on a smartphone, that's a very different thing than what Pi was looking at because here's a, a device which has a design of its own, but what you're viewing on it is changing uh, you know, in the blink of an eye very rapidly. So there are layers to the design of what we're looking at from, you know, 18 inches away. You know, a lot of people are on it for hours per day. So uh, that's why, you know, it's often recommended that you, if you suffer from headaches and stuff, you should go outside and let your eyes go to the horizon, right? Mm-hmm. Widen your, your, yeah. your gaze. Um, it'll really help you. Uh, but I would say, you know, even more so now are we really focused close up in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um, Pi again reiterate, reiterates this point uh, as he moves through his argument. He says, a thing properly designed and made continually reveals new complexes of newly perceived formal, element, formal elements the nearer you get to it. So, uh, and then he brings up this example because this is a, a place to start thinking um, a little more deeply about this. He says, any considerable building will reveal itself differently at every range from six inches to several miles. Uh, also, a rubbish heap will do that, okay? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the closer you get, the more you can make out little details. Oh, there's, you know, that uh, garbage from the other day, and oh, look, there's a kitchen sink up there. But it had a shape from a long it distance. Did. It did. It looked like a mountain. <laughs> But he says, there are no ordered relationships to the rubbish heap. And so there's no quality of art or I would say design uh, about it. So he's he's contrasting those two. One thing has intentionality and the other doesn't. Though they share in this detail of diversity, uh, it it expresses itself differently. Right. He's saying, uh, he actually says, you know, some people think of art as novelty, but he says that actually has nothing to yeah. do with it at all. Novelty? Uh, what's yeah. that about? He said art, uh, it, it lies in the subtlety of relating the <clears throat> formal elements of design. The subtlety of relating the elements, the shape and the texture and the color and the whatever. Yeah. That's what art's all about, is this ordered relationship of these elements, uh, this intentional uh, creating of something. So that, I think, is really important, this distinguish why, why they're philosophically why there's a difference between a house and a rubbish heap. Yeah. The intentionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, novelty, he says, can be exciting and delightful in art as in other affairs, but art exists in its own right, independently of novelty. So, um, you know, going on in this argument, he talks about um, how uh, in the art of workmanship, so that word we might call skill, (coughs) Um, we seek to diversify the scale of those formal elements which begin to be distinguishable at a close range, and also in season to diversify the forms themselves by allowing slight improvisations, divagations, and irregularities so that we're continually presented with fresh and unexpected incidents of form. Yeah, it's this fresh and unexpected incident thing that is you're surprised. Right. I mean, that's what it is to engage with a piece of art is you're being surprised. You're interacting or engaging with this object. It's saying, hey, look at this. Now look at this. Draw your eye here. It's this fresh and unexpectedness 
that he's, he's highlighting. Yeah. He says that's rarely possible to do by the workmanship of certainty, but is always possible by the workmanship of risk. So from here he goes on and he says that <clears throat> within the workmanship of certainty, there are degrees to which you can introduce textures, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you pour a concrete foundation, you can use wooden forms and you can create a fake wooden texture on that concrete foundation. But he says, uh, we don't want every piece of concrete to show board marks. We don't want every piece of paving to be fake cobbled, right? right? He says, like, if we introduce, like, in what little bit of control we have to introduce uh, essentially artificial diversity, pretty soon it just becomes as monotonous as as if it were completely featureless. Right, it's the un, unrelieved monotony <clears throat> he was referring to earlier in an earlier chapter saying, we don't want monotony. And if right. you say, oh no, so I'm going to constantly make these little uh, gouge marks all the way over, yeah. that can turn into monotony too at a certain scale. So I think he, he really is concerned with diversity, that you have these hard, sleek, shiny textures next to rough, raw textures next to upholstery next to, I'm using furniture analogies here, but that you have this variety that's represented there uh, that's really important for the design. Yeah, he says, what we want is diversity, which begins at the smallest visible scale and develops continuously upwards from that. And even then, we do not want it always and everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he says it's like a... <clears throat> It's like a vitamin. It's like a vitamin, <laughs> not a diet. Right. And I know that there's there are all these diet fads where they say you should only eat yeah. red meat. That's right. the only thing you should consume. Or you should only eat vegetables or leafy greens or fruit or oh, whatever, yeah. right? And I think he, he would say with, with this analogy, yeah, you're asking for disaster. That's not the way it works. Right. That we have a full plate has meat and potatoes and yep. veggies some and greens, all sorts yep. of things some and colors. Uh, some milk and a glass of wine and you're all set, you know? Uh, and I think he's saying from a design standpoint, you have to have all that stuff or it's going to be an atrophied design. It's not going to give you everything you need. It's going to be like eating a plate of vitamins. Yeah. Which is not all that good. No. Uh, so here again, Pi, I mean, he kind of drives another nail into the coffin of the argument uh, that's often raised against him, which is to say, oh, pie is just all like uh, romantic, like handwork is the only way and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's, that's not what pie ever says. <clears throat> he says, nor am I saying that free workmanship is better than regulated, mm -hmm. nor that regulated workmanship is the ruin of our civilization. <laughs> On the contrary... He, he is not arguing that. <laughs> he's not arguing that. <laughs> On the contrary, I say that the on the contrast and tension between regulation and diversity depends half the art of workmanship. Yeah. So I think that's an important point to yeah. take away here. He's saying, no, it's not all one, and it's not all the other. There's regulation in everything, and that's valuable, and there should also be diversity and free work, and that's really valuable too. Yeah. Right. So It's uh, this unity and diversity that just yeah. runs through the universe, right? You have to have this. Uh, you have a, a unified polis or whatever you have right. a, a you know a, a people group that have a, a cultural identity but every person is unique or mm -hmm. whatever this runs through all of uh, all the universe and i think that's what he's getting at and that is the art of it is yeah. understanding the contrast and tension between this regulation and diversity 
that is half of the art of workmanship. That's it right there. If you can get yeah. your arms around that and appreciate that and and play with those two dynamics, you, you're an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And so he he ends this paragraph with a warning. And I I every time uh, Pi starts going in a direction where he's starting to apply like a warning or the danger or even a moral argument, I, I take notice. I, I want to know more. I want to hear more about fr- from him about this. He doesn't yeah. ever uh, totally go there, but yeah. he peppers this with some slight warnings. He says, but for our generation, unrelieved regulation is bad and may even be dangerous. Yeah. So unrelieved- I have my hand up right now. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Wh- Pie. Mr. Pie. Yeah. What do you mean dangerous? Can you give us a few paragraphs about what you mean there? And he'd say, No. Not right now. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm trying to be scientific right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, the scientific argument can only take you so far. And so for him to go there and to say what might be dangerous for humankind in unrelieved regulation, uh, he has to step out and into another form of argument, maybe the philosophical or something like that. Yeah. So he's focusing <clears throat> his efforts in this chapter and really the book on the value of design that you need to appreciate diversity and diversity comes through workmanship of risk. Right. So therefore we need workmanship of risk because we need diversity because it gives us this uh, lively visual environment. Yep. That's fundamentally <clears throat> the, the main argument of his book. Yep. So when, like if you sit back and just try and imagine what unrelieved regulation looks like, right? He He's talking, he gives several examples. And this this chapter, this is maybe the longest chapter, maybe the second longest chapter in the book. Um, it contains a number of plates, which uh, I, I find really interesting. These are always useful because it's a picture of an object and then a, a, a deep and thorough explanation of what he wants us to see, what we see, what is valuable, what is beautiful, what is interesting. <clears throat> and so one of the plates is kind of his uh, his idea of um, basically unrelieved regulation. And mm-hmm. he shows this apparatus in a, a clinical setting, as he'd call it. He, he does call it clinical. It's like a hospital or a laboratory. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this object uh, is very easy to clean. <laughs> like... <laughs> This is, so it's like this room and you picture it's a black and white photo, but you picture it's like a sixties hospital kind of thing. It looks very similar to a hospital of today. It's yeah. very clean. It's very clinical. It's very machine. You can imagine a low hum in the background, you know, like that, that hospital sound. Uh, and he says it it's, has excellent and desirable quality for an apparatus of this sort, right? So it, it does all the things you'd want it to do in that setting, but he says uh, that um, basically whether it is appropriate to large agglomerations of large buildings is more than doubtful, though. He's saying like, okay, in its context, this works. But if you're going to make a bigger building or a city or a civilization like this. Or a says, home. Or a home, exactly, right? Like <laughs> this is what we encounter every day. He says it will come to seem infuriatingly vacuous. Oh, I love Which that. is a strong term. So he's saying, <laughs> like, in its place, this kind of unrelieved regulation is probably appropriate. You yeah. want an object that does its job, does it well, does it efficiently, is easy to clean, 
And mm-hmm. it, you don't care about aesthetic value. Yeah. But if that was your life, you'd start to repair. Your bedroom? You'd go insane. Yeah. <laughs> it would incite fury. Yes. You would become infuriated. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, he does talk uh, later on here. He talks about diversity in machines. Mm-hmm. I found this a really interesting section. He says, because the idea of this contrast, this precision and then uh, coarseness. Yeah. He said, this is the idea of variety. This is beauty, right? He's, he gives some examples. A painted casting. So like if you have a sand cast object that is machined, you leave the sand casting marks where they're fine, right? But then you machine it to this perfect, beautiful perfection. And he says, that is a beautiful object. That has both roughness that invites you in and perfection in that polished surface that is this beauty of form. And he's like, that is a really great object. I, I think, you know, people who are into uh, like vintage machinery, you know, antique yeah. machinery and stuff, yeah. I think that's, I would guess, Pi would say, yeah, that's probably what draws them in. They talk about, oh, these things are just so beautiful. They don't make things like this anymore. I think that might yeah. be a part of it. There might be an ingenuity in design. But when you look at, you know, a, a flywheel, mm-hmm. right? A, a sandcast flywheel mm-hmm. and the that uh, difference from a Victorian flywheel to one that's made today, yeah. there's nothing to see in right. that brand new one. Yeah, it's we don't do just... sandcasting much anymore <laughs> exactly. for, yeah, exactly. for new It's production. not an interesting object in itself. It's yeah. just, you know economical it just has a job it just right you know, turns the belt it just turns you know whatever um but he's saying so fine it's functional it's like the clinic mm-hmm. but if you're talking about is this thing beautiful then you're going to have to use some other sort of method of manufacture than something that just produces uh, functional objects right so uh now he gets into a section that's near and dear to our hearts right uh, he says, the effects of age and wear are powerful diversifying agents, and it's appropriate to consider them here. So yeah. we will do that. Uh, he's talking about patina. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how Like crow's feet wrinkles <clears throat> and by your that's eyes. That's right. I'm just aging and the, well. The yeah. gray hairs in my beard. Yep. I was recently patina. I was recently just told that I look older than Mike yep. because I have gray hair in my that beard. That was great. My beard. And I will remember that one. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm five years older, and and I have guy. more wisdom in my beard. You do, yep, that's true. <laughs> I agree with that. I show it in different ways. So okay, um, but yeah, it's <clears throat> it's very interesting to think about what age and wear do to beautify an object. Mm-hmm. Obviously, age and wear can uh, destroy an object too. So there's a fine line. Age and wear can also make an object disgusting, mm-hmm. you know, like rotten and yeah. m- mildewy. Like you yeah. don't want to touch it without gloves. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a line in a place where uh, age, regular wear for a cared for object increases its beauty. And we don't always understand why. So Pi kind of it starts digging into this a little bit here. Yeah, he actually talks about, first of all, you know, why... Why would we prefer things to not have been affected by age and wear, mm. i.e. newness value? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we have such a thing as newness value? Right. And he has two interesting uh, answers. He says the first is prestige, you know, like I yeah. can afford the brand new thing. Um, and that's 
sort of a straightforward observation. That's why someone would want something to be polished and new, because they can afford to keep it up, right? But the second observation, he says, uh, it's more important uh, and uh, it's a more constant reason that we do not like to think of ourselves aging. Mm. And we project this feeling onto our possessions. Hmm. <laughs> like, Whoa. Whoa, dude. Okay, so he's basically saying the reason we have this um, this sense, this newness value, and some of us push against age and wear, even like even in a human face. I think that is yeah. a good analogy. Why do we have this cult of newness that we value? You know, the the twenty somethings face, right? But the 60, 70 year olds face, we say, oh, oh, the beauty of youth, right? Right. But there's a difference there. He's saying part of the reason we have this cult of newness is this sense of futility that, hmm. you know, it's what newness symbolizes, yeah. as he puts it. That's what we're latching onto. So he's actually kind of, I think, pushing back on that, saying they're actually, we have to appreciate that age and wear actually are powerful diversifying agents that when you see that black and white photograph of that old man's face with the weathered skin and that you know there's a beauty in that you say that is that Mm. is a a photo beautiful photograph Mm -hmm. right there's something um attractive about that that just shows the i don't know the authenticity of experience or whatever and you know artifacts can also have that that when they have patina, 200 years of wearing and rubbing and dirt and grime, there's it's that same sort of um, time-tested authenticity, this this age value that we imbue the objects with. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I found this little section funny. He talks about <clears throat> um, the, the idea of prestige. He says, to be smart, one should have a new car and an old house. Or perhaps that is now out of date, and one should have an old car and a new house. So, you know, you get the sense like in certain places, depending on where you live, you show your prestige by either having the latest and the greatest or by having something old and valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Or you have some combination of both. But he says, um, in either case, these whims of one-upmanship need not detain us. So he's like, let's move on from that. It it has nothing to do here. We're not not weighing this against what our neighbors have Mm -hmm. to see. Uh, what is most valuable here. So he's talking about this idea of um, uh, why this age, this wear is valuable in beauty. And he draws a, a distinction here, like I mentioned, about damage, right? right. There comes a point where patina is just damage. Yeah, and that, no longer patina. Yeah, that's kind of a... Now it's just damage. You have to turn back from there. So he said, and also uh, this idea, which again, in Pi's day was... Uh, around, but I think it's more prevalent now, this kind of idea of planned obsolescence. Mm-hmm. So he says, there are obvious exceptions uh, to this this idea of uh, newness symbolizing special qualities or values. He says, there are things that are made for a short life, which quickly use their lose their youth and look worn out, which, in other words, soon get damaged. And so... In his day, that would be an object made with a low quality that mm-hmm. wears out. It's essentially a disposable object, though there there weren't really. I mean, even as recently as '68, you weren't really using as many disposable objects as we do today. And probably in '68, felt that <clears throat> way. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know. Right. Like, oh my goodness. What do you mean a single-use cup? 
that's ridiculous. <laughs> I can't believe that what the world's coming to. Yeah. Um, but also now we have <clears throat> devices that are being made that do not necessarily wear out, but they are uh, intentionally worn out by their manufacturers so that mm-hmm. you desire to buy a new one. Like they could last a lot longer. Mm-hmm. They're they're made with a quality that uh, is excels. You know anything made in sixty eight. Right. Um. But you can't sell a new one if the old one's still working fine. So it's this uh, this planned obsolescence now more than just an object made with low quality. It's objects made with high quality but are engineered to uh, fade away so that you desire the new one. Um, so in, in essence, it is the same as an object of low quality becoming damaged. If, if your new laptop that you just bought a few years ago, you can't update the iOS anymore, the operating system or something, because uh, some part of it is being phased out, it's essentially a damaged machine. It no longer does what you need it to do, so you need to get a new one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pi is just giving us uh, glimpses of our time uh, and he's looking ahead and seeing uh, these trends in manufacturing and things like that. Um, I wonder what he'd say about the direction that a lot of these things have gone today. It'd be interesting. To, it would be interesting to share yeah. with him some of what's going on with design and production and things like that. So um, he starts to talk about Saint Paul, uh, Saint Paul's Cathedral, and talks about um, the lichen that's growing on it and the dirt. And some people, when it was cleaned. Uh, this con- this controversy about what was more beautiful, um, and some people said that was more beautiful. He doesn't agree, and this I think is interesting because he says that um, the soot on the cathedral uh, seemed to me to act like disruptive camouflage, mm. and this is actually a really similar uh, debate in the art connoisseurship world uh, when you're conserving a painting. Right. And you're having the old darkened varnish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, does the darkened varnish that the original artist applied over the paint, it, does that contribute the, the darkness of it? Right. That you darkness. now can no longer see the... Yeah, darkness the, from age. Darkness right? from it age. It wasn't originally that dark. Exactly, right? So this darkness now that that is present now but wasn't then, the question is, should we hire a conservator to remove that old varnish? applied by the original artist to put a brand new clear varnish on it so that we can see the portrait yeah. more clearly. And this is huge uh, unending debate about it because you have some people who have this age value that they attribute to that varnish and they say, this testifies to the beauty. This is patina of a painting. I was just at an art museum a, f- a couple weekends ago and saw some paintings that you could see not all of them had this, but some of them had really darkened varnish. Mm. I could not see. You can't the make sky out the was brown yeah. and the ground was brown and right. the people, everything, every single thing was just a shade of brown because the whole varnish was just homogenizing everything. And, you know, if you've seen these before, they, they do these um, conservation treatments where they remove the varnish. You realize, oh my goodness, that sky is like brilliant yeah. blue and all the people's facial characteristics just pop out and like, oh, this is so great. And so I think Pi is kind of saying that there's this disruptive camouflage, that there's something beautiful there. And when you have too much uh, too much accretion, right. <laughs> this accumulation of junk, you're just obscuring the beauty that's underneath yeah. it. That can definitely happen. And so there's this 
sort of sweet spot that he's talking about, the diversifying effects of age and wear, but it's got to be subtle because yeah. otherwise it can just obscure and it's just homogenous. Yeah. So back in issue one, if we can remember that far back, Morris and Tenen, so you reproduced one of Jonathan Fisher's yeah. tables. Yep. And you painted it just as he had painted his. So it's yep. it's this card table, right, with a fold-out top. And he did some, uh, you'd say, you could say very rudimentary grain painting on it. Yep. So he used yellows, and then he used reds. And, and black. And black. That's it. And so your reproduction of that, you, you took the original, and you looked at all the tool marks, and you deciphered. And you discern you wanted to make it the same way he would have made it, and mm-hmm. you wanted to paint it the same way he did. Yeah. The finished object is garish. Right. It like jumps out at you because the one in the the um the original object it it has that age that wear of time. It's like the typical like nicely muted dark antique wood colors mm-hmm. <clears throat> from centuries of use. Yeah. And yours was like. Boom! Like it's it like pops right out of McDonald's, <laughs> right? It's like I mean, red and of, yellow, it's like those colors. <laughs> and but, but so I think what's interesting about that is, I would say from an aesthetic standpoint, I would say that really needs the diversifying effects right, of age right. to, to kind of mellow it and mm-hmm. give it some some warmth and character. But we also, um, in the most recent issue, issue fourteen, uh, we are using a photograph of a sideboard mm-hmm. uh, from the Met. And this sideboard is a federal sideboard. It has lots of inlay and stringing and all this beautiful stuff. And it's like that darkened varnish. It's yeah. all just different shades of brown. You can't yeah. you can't distinguish it. But you have this satin wood binding, this inlay stringing. I mean, this satin wood stringing, and it's supposed to stand yeah, out from pop, the background, right? Because you have uh, over time dark woods. This is you know walnut. Dark woods go light, and light woods go dark. Mm-hmm. So you have walnut with this bright white stringing, and yeah. it just pops right off the right. the door, right? And it's supposed to be like that. And now, two hundred years later, it's yeah. all just kind of washed color. Yeah. So it's an interesting. <clears throat> so I would say that's way too far. I mean, it's kind of boring looking at this mm. point. Um, so there's again, it's not about this um, reverence for one or the other to an extreme. He's saying. The whole art of this of this thing is playing with this diversity and understanding how these elements can play off each other in a powerful, uh, visually impacting way. Yeah, and to consider because Pi is discussing, he's he's talking about this in terms of like this pendulum. He talks about in our age, it's really important that we have this diversity right. in our lives. Back then more regulation would have been healthy because everything was brown wood colored. And so to get that card table that is bright yellow and bright red is like, everyone look at this. This is beautiful. Let's put this in the corner by that dark paneling, you know, or by the wood colored object over there. Cause this really stands out. And like this other area that we've um, started looking at and exploring is this idea of how um, there were often, uh, things applied to furniture to keep pests out. And, you know, the the typical back of an antique is this brown, right? You look at the back of dressers, the backs of things, there's this brown. It's just universal antique brown color. Particularly in England. It's almost like yeah. a, almost black, I would describe. Right. Like it's dark, very dark, dark, dark. You're like, what did they put on this? It's like used motor oil or something. But in a lot of cases, they were 
painting red lead on that. Which is what color? It is the brightest orange you can imagine. It's like nuclear orange. Yeah. So this piece was delivered and the back and undersides and insides of the drawer joinery is nuclear orange. Like safety cone. Yes, yeah, safety cone orange. orange. And that that is how it was delivered. I, and it's I still I don't even know about I can't even process that, but I yeah. believe it. I just Yeah, it's oh, wild. Man. Um so that there you say so does age uh, improve that? I would say probably that's an improvement that <laughs> it's that brown down. instead of <laughs> instead of safety cone orange. Uh but yeah, where were we? We were so we so I think so he picks up he says the beauty of cabinet work. Yes. is in the infinite diversity of the wood setting off the precision regulation of the work. Yeah. And I think so when you to think about this, let's say you have you're you're planning uh the a rail of a table or something and you have this grain that just undulates and dives and it's all over it's just beautiful wood, right? Mm. And so you cut two straight lines and you plane it nice and flat. Um, and you put that in, now you have this diversity, right? You have this, these straight, rigid, regulated lines of cabinet work, and then this grain that just crazy grain dances yep. across the surface. And he's saying that's, that's one way that why wood is so special, because it is inherently, well, it's, it's easy to shape, but it's also inherently beautiful and, and dances around so that if you do use it in very regulated uh, ways of working, 90 degree shoulders and stuff, it still can actually be quite beautiful, because it's not homogenous. Yeah. Yeah, he talks here. Uh, he says, <clears throat> almost anybody will at least pay lip service to the qualities which age and weather impart to the outside of buildings. So, like, pretty much everyone appreciates that. A beautiful old building, you know, let's say it's a cathedral with a copper roof, and it's just age makes it more beautiful. And he says, though this is often a pretty naive tribute compared with the Japanese cult of sabi, which is the love of imperfection as a measure of perfection. And he doesn't unpack that too much, but that's always a really interesting one to go back to, the idea of sabi or wabi-sabi, the idea of taking an imperfection in an object and accentuating it. Mm -hmm. If you have a check in a bowl, a big crack that would maybe make it unusable, you fill it with gold. You know, you, you highlight that imperfection and it makes the object so much more beautiful. Like the repair for that kind of damaged object is so beautiful that the object becomes that much more special. Hmm. That's not something that you can do um, within the workmanship of certainty. It is, it, it's just, it requires free work to do that kind of repair and accentuate the imperfection to make it more beautiful. So then he uh, has this interesting little aside, which I, I think he's just highlighting the, the differences here. But he says that um, that photography uh, it, it can't show all the diversification present, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a limited amount of information that can be conveyed through a photograph. Um, he says a good reproduction of a good, a good photograph can show an astonishing amount, to be sure, and it rests on uh, considerable feats of workmanship but it always tells less than the truth mm. that you're never going to see all of that. And so um, he, he actually says things are designed with future photographs of them in mind. <laughs> right. Again, you know, like how many things are designed mm. by thinking about what would this look like in a magazine? Mm. What would this look like on my workbench? What would this look like? And you're always thinking about the, the picture and what that photograph is going to be. Um, and so he's saying that 
the photograph isn't the thing, you know, that when you're actually holding that object, is it going to let you down? Cause there's nothing more to it than that. Right. <clears throat> so he goes to this point and he says, after so much about diversification and workmanship, it had better be repeated. So this is important. Take note. <laughs> that diversification is not essentially a property of workmanship alone, but that at medium and long ranges, it is entirely controlled by design Mm -hmm. and at long range, usually with great success. So again, it's the idea that if you're looking at a handmade object, you look close, the diversity is from the human being Mm -hmm. who made it. If you step back and look at it, the diversity is the design, i.e. the proportions yeah, and the shapes. Yeah, exactly. All the... those elements that come together to make it beautiful, it's design. Yep. Because the make the person who made it can vary from the design at a close range, and it adds to the beauty. But if it's a good design, you want to stick pretty close to that design. Right. So that's the, the big picture view. That's stepping back and looking and saying, that's a beautiful object. Yep. And the way that that um, sofa fits into the parlor. Right is another scale of stepping back and saying, yes, that works so well in this whole order of the way that the room is designed. Um, And so at each of those scales, design works, design works. And as you get closer, all of a sudden, there's not really much a designer can do to influence that effect when you're holding the thing in your hand. When you open the drawer and the way it feels, that is just all left up to the workman. It is, yep. He says, distance lends enchantment an ugly building is apt to look less lo- less ugly the farther off you go. And <laughs> I mean, that's a nice thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always say like, you know, if you if you're making something and it's not going uh, together really well, it doesn't look good or like a joint is not coming together, it always looks good when you turn the lights off. Yeah, oh totally. <laughs> it I mean, it's funny we used to have when I worked on um sailboats, we had different boats with different aesthetic considerations and some of them if they look great from 20 feet away, that's all the owner wanted. Some of them, you had to be a lot closer than that and a lot more finicky. <laughs> but um, yeah, basically an ugly boat looks great from across the harbor. Yeah, right? on it's the like, cover of wooden boat. Yeah. You know, oh, like, that's beautiful yeah. over there. Uh, yeah. But you get close and you're like, oh, yeah. there's some problems here. Photographs always tell <laughs> less than the truth. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, so yeah, Pi talks about the sight of a good building or a ship from a long distance uh, and how that has a particular attraction. So he talks about Ruskin uh, <coughs> right at the very end of this chapter. He says, Ruskin knew and wrote about diversity, though he didn't call it by that name, but he was talking about diversity. Um, and characteristically, he observed the facts with great insight and discrimination and Oops. stated them beautifully. Yeah. But here's his contention but he drew conclusions from them, which uh, they do not point to. Mm-hmm. So then he goes on talking about this. And we'll leave uh, Rusk, the discussion about Ruskin to that chapter. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, he's saying so much of what Ruskin and the arts and crafts movement was uh, celebrating aesthetically, this uh, this diversity, this roughness, this this texture. Pi saying, yeah, there's something to that. You're observing all this correctly and putting it well, but you've... Mm just made a leap too far. Right. So I think that really sets up the, the future of that discussion. Yeah, I noted in my sidebar here next to that comment, shots fired. Shots fired. He's, he's starting to get into it with Ruskin. <clears throat> um, so at this point, we get into a series of plates. 
Um, there's a, a silver tobacco box. There's that, um, that very clinical scene that we were talking about earlier. There's a model of an, a blowing engine from 1825 to 1850 somewhere. He says it's, it's from a museum, and it's a really interesting setting because it's supposed to be in a factory, but the factory is like this uh, perfect-looking, like, cuboid form thing. It's, yeah, it's like it's, a mock-up of it's it. It's yeah. a mock-up of the factory, right. which is has no aesthetic value, really, except to frame uh, context for this machine, which is beautiful. Which is a very effective... <clears throat> Um, you know, uh, museum presentation. Yeah. Minimalist. You don't want to notice the museum. Exactly. You want to notice the pieces in it. Yeah, exactly. So it's setting, the, it's letting that fall to the background and letting the object come to the foreground. Uh, but it in itself is only good as a as a background. It's mm-hmm. not actually a beautiful thing because right. it's so homogenous. So then a few other mechanical wonders. Uh, there's a, a carving of the prophet Haggai and he says, I, I like this one. It's this really interesting expression uh, on this, the face of this sculpture. And um, Pi says, the head shows rough, rough workmanship at its highest pitch of refinement. Hmm. So this is, he's holding this up. Like you look close and there are a lot of different features going on here. And you step back and you see the face, you see the expression uh, you can see that you know the, this prophet's hair and his beard and everything, but there are so many details. It almost looks like it was done quickly, but there's amazing skill to it's it. It's like a sketch. Yeah, I it's mean, a it really is a in, quick in sketch, stone. but it's a carving sketch. Yeah. It's just really rough. And you know, he says the the head was evidently designed to be seen at some considerable distance. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it would have been more highly finished. No doubt its carver would have thought it quite unfit to be seen close right, by. in a photograph. He's saying <laughs> no carver would have said, yeah, look at that. Come look at look at every little texture up close. This yeah. was meant to be set up high and away from people. And it was so, um, such broad strokes and so um, kind of exaggerated, I guess maybe you could say, mm-hmm. so that when mm-hmm. you're 100 feet away, you go, wow, look yeah, at the expression at that. on that face, Yeah, right? That was the whole point. Yeah, and so that, that carving's from the last quarter of the 13th century, which is cool to, to consider. Um, <clears throat> then there's some, some screen printing, uh, a water mill in a wood. There's some buildings. There's an airplane. And just different elements of all these things described. Uh, I, on page 80, uh, plate 21B, he's, he has this... A porcelain dish, and he, he shows that this porcelain dish was hand painted. He says it's astonishingly high, uh, highly regulated workmanship, considering that it was done freehand at speed with a brush. Wow! It shows the pitch <clears throat> to which practice can bring dexterity. Mm-hmm. So you, it, it's amazing because it's actually this really close up photograph, and it almost looks identical, symmetrical. Yeah. But then you look, you really pay attention close enough, and you say, no, it is actually, yeah. they're all kind of subtly different. Yeah, it's almost like a real leaf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you see that, this this leaf, <clears throat> the, the veins on the, the leaves here, they're almost identical. But what that shows is that this artisan had dexterity, that they did this day in and day out. They knew exactly every motion of every single brushstroke <clears throat> so that they were really... Uh, they're highly regulated because of dexterity, not because of a jig or a template, but because they were that good. Right. So. And that would have been amazing to watch yeah. someone at work at that. Uh, so the last plate is of a simple breadboard, 
Um, so if, if you picture a breadboard that's been in use for 100 years, that's kind of what you get from this image. It's been scrubbed so much that the grain is, is pitting where there's a softer grain. Um, there's a lot of texture going on here. And he talks about this. It's a, just a scrubbed, a, a worn and scrubbed breadboard. And he says, the delightful appearance which wear and scrubbing have given the Elm breadboard is the outcome, not so much of one surface quality as a whole range of formal elements at different scales, running at one end into the domain of low relief modeling and at the other into nuances far too subtle for this or any other photograph to show. So he's he's saying that, I mean, there's so much going on here. Like the 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 beauty and diversity of this very simple and you know, plain object. This is this was not an object that was made to be beautiful, mm -hmm. but it's become beautiful through use. Like you see knife marks and you see the scrubbing and all of that has imparted a diversity that the original object did not have. And so that is 100% age bringing beauty and adding beauty uh, through diversity. One of the things that um, my wife and I were looking through uh, piles of different um, home design books and uh, some of the elements, but also laying out rooms and stuff. And it's interesting to look at right now, there's this trend, I think that really picks up on these kinds of insights, this diversity of texture is one way to describe it. Um, and I think that when you've, if you've gone into any uh, colonial reproduction type houses mm -hmm. that miss that, mm -hmm. they go, here are the formal elements, that which can be uh, laid out on um, a, a drawing, right? Right. And everything is smooth and mm -hmm. crisp corners. It's poly drywall yeah. that's sanded smooth and painted, and everything is just the same thing. It feels nothing like being in a colonial house, right? Because you you have this because it was handwork. It was inherently full of diversity at that close range experience mm. when you're inside the room or holding on to the railing. And so we've been uh, looking at that and thinking about the difference between um, machine-made reproductions of right. styles, that why they don't actually have that same feel. And it's because of exactly what Pi is talking yeah. about, that at that close range, it, it's not effective. It yeah. can only be look the same on a drawing. Yeah. Uh, so this was a great chapter. Yeah. Um, really enjoyable to go through and talk about this stuff. Um, <clears throat> the next chapter is on durability. So we're going to be unpacking some of those concepts a little bit more that Pi just started to hit on in, in this chapter. Um, but thank you all for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could leave us a review, uh, we'd love to read that. And if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.